The Trumpet Daily Program begins right now. Today's world news, what it means, where it's taking us. I bring you the one and only possible message of world peace. This is a message of hope, tremendous hope. And he said unto me, you must prophesy again. The Trumpet Daily Program begins right now. You've learned a lot more about January 6th. You talked to hundreds of defendants. What have you learned? Well, first I've learned about pain. I believe in my nephew. I am proud of him. He was just larger than life. We wanted to come and kind of just share what really happened today. He had never been in trouble before in his life. So this was just so overwhelming. I was sitting in my home and I got a call from his uncle. What did he say? They robbed him of his hope, his will to live. They took his fight away from him. They broke him. They completely broke him and they broke his heart. It's hard to find the truth these days and it's needed now more than ever. We've traveled the country to bring you honest, accurate reporting. Bottom line, Laura, they didn't want people going to the Capitol. They didn't want people even getting close to the Capitol. It never would have happened. It happened because they wanted it to happen. No one was stopping you. This is the government we're talking about, okay? Like they have like nukes and F-15s. They can do whatever they want to stop average people like me. 34-year-old Roseanne Boylan was one of four people killed. This was a woman who got pushed down, smothered, trampled, and then beaten. Had this been covered at all by anyone else in the media? No. They named me as one of the insurrectionists that was preventing the cops from rescuing her. Was that true? Absolutely not. This crutch was right at my feet, and I put it above my head, and I said, in the name of Jesus, Lord, please stop this. Jeremy was at the Capitol providing security. I mean, he's quite literally the poster boy for the special forces. When you were arrested, they never sat you down and said, is this yours? No, because they're the same officers that recruited me on December 9th of 2020. From Department of Homeland Security. The same two guys. These people are hiding all of this information, and judges have let them get away with that. You could be here forever. I will be here as long as the American people leave me here. I'm Laura Logan with the rest of the story. Join us. There you have it. Uh, welcome to this uh, special episode of the Trumpet Daily. We're uh, here to uh, have a, a nice discussion with our special guest, Laura Logan. Thank you for joining us on today's show. Tell us uh, a little bit about your show. <laughs> well, it's called The Rest of the Story with Laura Logan. And the first season focuses a lot on January 6th, mostly because I found that uh, very little reporting was being done. There were some people out there like the Gateway Pundit right. um, and the Epic Times newspaper and a number of other reporters who were doing their best. Yeah. But um, what we have a situation where one side has information dominance. And unfortunately, Republicans were as much as a, a part of the false narrative on January 6th as Democrats. So you don't even have, in a sense, you know, your, for conservatives who went there that day for Republican voters, they didn't even have their own side right. on their side. And as a, as a reporter, I'm always drawn to stories where we don't know the truth. Right. And so once I started to look into January 6th, I, I had felt guilty for quite some time because I knew there was a great miscarriage of justice that was unfolding. I mean, you only have to look up the definition of insurrection. Right, right. <laughs> really, uh, to know that um, the whole thing was a lie. That doesn't mean people didn't get hurt. It doesn't mean there wasn't violence, mm -hmm. but who was carrying out that violence? Right. Why were they doing it? Yeah. And was it organized in some form? Right. Um, and so those are the questions that we tried to answer, but always with what I do, um, we looked at the stories that were just uh, astonishing to us, like the, the Matthew Perna who 
killed himself while he was awaiting trial, Victoria White, uh, who's beaten almost to death by police in the tunnel, Roseanne Boyland, who did die right. on January 6th. And what really happened to Roseanne Boyland? Why do most people in America not know her name? Everybody right. should know her right. name and so on. So that's just the first series of the show, yeah. which is on X and you can find it on truthandmedia.com as well. Um, the on next X if they, if they go to your uh, Twitter page? or Yes, you can okay. find it on my Twitter page and yeah. you can also find it on Truth and Media okay. on Twitter. Yeah. And um, You've had three episodes thus far, what would you say? Actually, we've had seven. Oh, well, I, can't, I guess seven counting one is out. January 6th. Well, three least. parts on, uh, so what we had is the first the first two episodes were on Matthew Perna's story, right. part one and part two. The second uh, two episodes were on the, the Brunson, Brunson brothers, yep. right? So that was four episodes. And then the three that you're talking about right. is that we've had three parts yep. on the Fed-surrection versus insurrection, right. which, has, uh, which has had a lot on Ray Epps, but right. is not just about Ray Epps. What would you say of those three have been the biggest revelations to you as a reporter? Well, one thing is that, <clears throat> so as a, as a journalist, I believe very strongly that we have a responsibility to understand the whole story. And a lot of journalists don't like to do that. One, because if you've got a daily deadline, you just don't have time. Um, others, quite frankly, are lazy. Mm -hmm. um, others just don't even think about it, right? They take a clip or something that's going around, that, that see it everywhere, oh, it's on New York Times or it's, you know, it's on Washington Post, so therefore they just take it at face value. And you'd be astonished at how few reporters sit down, like I sat down <laughs> with that footage of Ray Epps the night before January 6th, telling people you must go into the Capitol. And I was like, hmm, how did we get to that point? Mm -hmm. Where did that conversation begin? And I went all the way back to the beginning of the live stream and I watched it all the way through to the end. And so what I found was that Ray Epps was questioned by the January 6th committee about telling people to go into the Capitol. He was questioned by the FBI about that, but somehow, Nobody questioned him about what he said later in the evening when he said, we're really, he whispered, we're here to storm the Capitol. Yeah, it was brilliant the way you, uh, well, you played that, but then you had the montage afterward, all the talking heads that used the exact same language. Yes, because it's a, what's significant about that, if you understand information warfare, is that Ray Hepps was using the language of the narrative, right? That was the narrative the next day and still today it's the narrative right. that people stormed the Capitol. But yet he was using that language before it even happened. Right. So what does that tell you? Is that definitive proof? No, it's not definitive proof. But it does, it is a strong indication when you have people saying the same thing and when you have people saying it in advance of an event happening that they know that that event is going to happen, that there's some degree of planning and manipulation behind it. Right. So that's what we're trying to uncover because we live right now in the age of fifth generation warfare, which is defined as the war of narratives. So it doesn't matter what the truth is because if the narrative prevails, the truth gets lost. And that's what they want you to, they want you to give up on finding the truth, give up on it. Just much easier, go along with the narrative. If you want to find the truth, guess what? You're going to lose your job. You might never get a job, right? And you're going to pay a heavy price. You might have the FBI coming after you. You know, you might have people in your family that you care about that don't want anything to do with you anymore. You're going to lose friends. So just go along with the narrative. Right. Right? And, and, and what is the main infrastructure? What is the architecture of the narrative yeah. that keeps it up? So in, a false narrative is like a lie. It needs legs, right? You have to create legs. The truth doesn't need any legs. It's either true or it's not true, right? And it stands on its own. You can't take it down. You can't change it. You can't do anything to it. You can lie about it. You can misrepresent it. You can, you can perceive it differently, but you can't change it. Whereas this false narrative, whew, that's a lot of work. We got to keep that false narrative going, right? Which means we got to tell another lie and another lie and another lie. And then by the way, those people that we got to tell lies, 
we got to keep them quiet, mm -hmm. right? We got to give them enough incentive. So either through corruption, because then maybe maybe we got a bad cop. Yeah, we got a dirty cop, and he's looking at you know the end of his career. Well, he's a good guy f to do what we want done on January six, right? Or maybe we've got uh, say someone who's been promoted into positions that they really have no business being in, mm -hmm. but they promoted for the wrong reasons, mm -hmm. right? Like Yogananda Pittman who was the head of intelligence for the Capitol Police. You know, that woman was not qualified for that job, but she was anointed. And let's call it out, let's call it what it is. She was anointed because she was black. And because we live in a time where putting people in those positions, making sure we have a black female in a position of power, you know, that was what motivated the progression of Yogananda Pittman's career. So you got a woman like that who secretly knows she's got no business being there in the first place. And then what does she do on January 6th? She goes into the control room and she takes over the operation. So is it any wonder you've got police officers, by the way, most of them black, screaming into their radios, looking for direction, asking what the hell's going on, and they're getting nothing back? Because the person whose job is not, that's not her job, but she's sitting in that seat and no one dares say a word. They don't dare say a word because why? Because she's anointed, which means what? She's protected by some of the most powerful people in this country. So you really have a situation where both sides, in a sense, both police and protesters, were set up. How many, you mentioned the Capitol Hill police. We know about the, the informants and the FBI's involvement uh, undercover. <laughs> as far as the Capitol Hill police, we were discussing this earlier this morning, but how, like, a lot of them did look like they were in the dark and set up, as you say. How many, though, were instigators? How many, I mean, there were the ones firing the flashbangs and all that that looked like they were unprovoked at, at all. I mean, they just were firing it into the crowd. So we don't know. That's the honest answer, right? I mean, January 6th was vast. You're talking about thousands, I mean, hundreds of thousands of protesters and thousands upon thousands of police. You've got different units. You have the Parks Police um, that had part of the jurisdiction. You had Capitol Police who have full jurisdiction over the Capitol. You had Metropolitan Police Department who were called in to assist. The government has acknowledged and admitted they were forced to do this during the Proud Boys trial um, to at least 13 Metropolitan Police Department undercover officers from the narco Special Narcotics mm -hmm. Unit. You also have the Department of Homeland Security and Joint Terrorism Task Force. Nobody's got asked them uh, to admit uh, how many people they had. And you said, you know, we know about this. We don't know. We don't know what those FBI agents were doing. We don't know how many FBI agents were there. We don't know what those confidential human sources were doing. We know what some of them were doing because in individual court cases, and we're talking about hundreds of court cases, right? If you read the statement of offense or you read the indictments, you can find information that leads you to what, ex what information was passed on by which uh, and you know, undercover officer or confidential yeah. informant. But that is an enormous undertaking. And some of it comes out during trial. So, you know, you have a handful of people who've been there at every trial, but who's got the ability to do that? Right. I mean, part of what is on the government side in this sense is the scale of it. Then on top of that, you've got documents that have been withheld from the public. You've got documents that have been withheld from senators and congressmen. Like you have, for example, the January 6th committee, mm -hmm. the self-appointed, you know, masters of the investigation, right. right? The documents they generated, the transcripts of interviews they carried out, belong to the House. They have refused to hand over those documents to the, for example, the House subcommittee um, on House Administration subcommittee run by uh, Congressman Barry Loudermilk right. that's investigating that. They have sub it's taken them almost a year to figure out how many documents were passed by the January 6 committee to the White House and some were passed to the Department of Homeland Security and they refused to give them to the House itself. The House owns those documents. You don't have a right to give them to the White House and not give them to your own committee. And then the White House, under pressure, produced some of those documents. And I've seen photographs. They're so heavily redacted. You've got entire pages that are black 
And those were transcripts of interviews that were done with secret, uh, with White House personnel that were with Donald Trump on January 6th. And then the documents that were sent to Department of Homeland Security, which by the way, have no business having those documents, those were transcripts of Secret Service agents who were with Donald Trump that day. So, and because for some extraordinary post 9-11 reason, the Secret Service now falls under DHS. Well, guess what? That the, uh, the House has requested those documents from DHS over and over and over. You know what DHS has said? What's that? Nothing. They've ignored them. Surprise, surprise. They're not <laughs> even responding. So when you say to me, what do we know about you yeah. know who is doing what, we know a tiny fraction of the truth. What we do see is you see some officers who are firing into the crowd that day, but they've, these are low level people, right? Yeah. I mean, when you're down there on the line, you have your frontline officers behind them. You have, you know, one step up, a more senior officer that's giving commands. And behind them, you have even more senior officers and, and another layer that goes back to the control center. So, I mean, I may be missing a layer or two, but essentially you have layers of authority, all of which broke down. Why? Because right at the top at the operations center, you had that woman, Yagananda Pittman, who was head of intelligence, who had no business running the operation that day. I don't even think Yagananda Pittman has spent four and a half seconds doing any actual police work in her entire life. So what did she know about running the operations? You should have had the operations chief in that chair, but he wasn't in that chair. Right. And so you have it break down all the way down, and then you have officers on the line that are sh you know, giving orders. I don't know, this guy Glover from the Metropolitan Police Department. I mean, if I was in combat with a guy like that, he's screaming on the radio, honestly, like a person in a state of absolute panic. You're in the Special Operations Division of the Metropolitan Police Department, which faces violence on a daily basis. Some of the most hardened cops in this country. Okay, you protect the nation's capital, one of the most protected pieces of ground on the face of the earth. You've gone up against everything from, you know, I mean, let's look at what they were doing in the wake of George Floyd's uh, uh, death, mm -hmm. right? You've gone up against Antifa. You've gone up against, I mean, for goodness sake, these, this is, these are the people that dealt with the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. I mean, every ma major movement of significant happens in Washington, D.C., and we're supposed to believe that the head of the Special Operations Develop Division of the Metropolitan Police Department was running around like a little girl in a panic? screaming like a banshee. I mean, I've been in combat. Okay, I have spent a many, many, many years in combat. I never once heard a low-level soldier, let alone a commander, screaming into a radio the way that guy was screaming. This is, so for me, the red flag goes up and I, I, I have to look into whether there are some theatrics there, right? right? Because these are experienced police officers, yeah. and all you need for chaos to ensue and for people to be set up is for some key people with placement and access to let them down. And they let down those police officers that day. Our viewers are very familiar with Ashley Babbitt, obviously. You were telling us earlier today uh, about Roseanne Boyland, and that's a story that hasn't gotten near as much coverage. Maybe you could get into some of the detail. Uh, I, some of the things you told me, I haven't even heard regarding her case. So Roseanne Boylan's case is very interesting because um, she is actually the only person that died on January 6th in the tunnel that was really at the hands of the Capitol Police. Now where does this tunnel go? Is so if you remember when you, when you saw a lot of the footage on January 6th, right, there were two places where most of the violence was taking place. So one was down by the fountains on the West Plaza, right, on the West entrance to the Capitol. So people came down from the Ellipse, they walked down Pennsylvania Avenue, they got to the Peace Circle, right. and then there's that, that famous now sort of infamous breach where Ray Epps is there and Ryan Samsel's the, the one at 
turns his his bolt cap backwards and they push through that that line of offices there and they keep going up and they they ultimately they end up at the west plaza where the fountains are and that's where you have a long line of capitol police and they try to hold that line for some time right. and there's there's skirmishes in in the front of that but what happens is that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people once trump finishes speaking they head that way towards the capitol so you just get more and more and more and more people flooding the zone right and some of them break through that line and they go up the scaffolding including by the way an undercover police officer who's in my, the last episode of my show saying go 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 right. come on keep moving go up there and they the scaffolding is all there for the inauguration because this is where they build the stage for the inauguration this is right before the inauguration is supposed to take place so they climb up the scaffolding and now you're on the next level and on that level there's some steps that go up into a tunnel that goes into the capitol building mm -hmm. well quite I, I, I mean i'm still trying to figure out what the real reason was that they defended that tunnel so uh, so in, in such a determined fashion, because at that point, by the time you know the first the first riders, um, well the first people come up to that those first barricades and break through that first barricade around 12:52. Trump is still speaking for another hour at that point, right? He's not even finished speaking, but by the time you get to that tunnel, it's after two o'clock in the afternoon, mm -hmm. and the police are told to come and into the tunnel from the inside when you look at some of the footage from the inside they're told to stop people coming through because people have been coming through the tunnel and so they you know the, the tunnel gets filled from the inside with police but from the outside you have people trying to go through that tunnel and for some strange reason this absolute violent mess occurs at that point I mean literally if the police had just stepped back and uh, and let people come into the building and then push them out that wouldn't have happened the windows the window to the side of that tunnel is broken and people going in and out of the capitol right there while that violence is happening people are entering the capitol right there now they'll tell you well the tunnel leads to this and it leads to that and it had to be protected none of that makes any sense because if you wanted to clear that tunnel yeah. you could have just made an announcement you could have said this has been declared a riot and every, the, the Capitol Hill buildings, what people forget, this is one of the most highly protected buildings on the face of the earth. It can survive chemical, radiological, biological, and nuclear attack. It is built to survive that. Okay, these are not ordinary security systems. You have loudspeakers that can reach every corner of the building and every corner of the grounds. Why were they not used? Mm -hmm. Why were they not used until it was dark, late in the evening, when all of this damage had taken place mm -hmm. and police officers had been hurt and people like Roseanne Boyland had been killed? Why was it not used? Also, when I did that thing of following that footage right to the end, how did they clear that tunnel in the end, I wanted to know. Hours after Roseanne Boyland was dead, you know what they did? They had one guy, one guy with a semunition weapon, which is a different level of training, it's a different level of authority. The police let him come through, mm -hmm. he opened fire with his semunition rifle, he cleared that tunnel in seconds. Right. People ran for their lives they scattered. Yeah. So there was absolutely zero reason to have pitched battles going on for hours at that tunnel entrance. Yeah. And somehow Roseanne Boyland, who by the way was a, I'm giving something away here in our reporting, but Roseanne Boyland was a Democrat. Mm -hmm. Roseanne Boyland wasn't a Trump supporter before Trump came along. She wasn't a Republican. She was a, actually a, a funny, irreverent, lovely woman. And um, she was marching with BLM the summer before. And she went there to be a voice for people all across this country who were concerned about the election. She got forced into that tunnel. And when the police decided to force everybody out, those people couldn't move because there were squads of people that were pushing them from behind. And Roseanne Boyland was one of the people trapped. So was Philip Anderson. And so was Tommy Tatum. You know, they weren't the only ones, and they went down. They couldn't breathe under there. I mean, you can you can hear it, and you can see it from the body cam footage yeah. that the officers had. You can hear people begging for help. Mm 
literally begging for help. And when some of the protesters realized that Roseanne Boyland was dying, they pulled her body out and they're doing CPR on her, and this is all on film. And they're still being sprayed and gassed by the police. And so there were a number of people like Aaron James and his young brother, he's a Navy corpsman. This is a guy who stitched people together on the battlefield, okay, who served his country um, with distinction. And he runs up there to help. He realizes he can't. They're already doing CPR. He can't do anything. But he sees two police shields on the ground. He gives one to his brother. And they hold up the shields to, so that the, the people doing CPR right. are not gassed right. into, into non-function, right, where they can't help Roseanne anymore. And for that, he's been charged with assault with a deadly weapon, impeding police officers. I mean, you name it. They've thrown because the book at him. Because he had the shield. All of these people around Roseanne Boyland, they're only now, most of them have been in prison without trial for years. They're only now starting to get their day in court. Colt McAbee, a deputy sheriff from Nashville, Tennessee. Okay, Colt was one of the people that tried to help Roseanne, was trying to do CPR on her. When a police officer was dragged into the crowd, he put his body over that officer. You can hear him on the, the video, on his body cam, saying, I'm not hurting you, man. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm here to help you let me try can you stand let me get you up he goes through this whole thing they just convicted Colt McAbee for assaulting a police officer they just convicted him he has awards for bravery there has been one miscarriage of justice after another I get you know actually talking to you about it Stephen because I'm so involved in in trying to make sure that it's accurate make sure the stories are good make right. sure we get everything right but as I speak to you about it I just get I just get so filled again with that absolute sense of injustice. The, it is. It's infuriating. It is, I mean, it's infuriating. Yeah. And you know, there's another Green Beret, former Green Beret of 20 years, Jeremy Brown. I want to tell you two things people said to me during these interviews. Jeremy Brown, it was in that trailer you prayed, played. He said, when I said you could be here for forever, and he said, I will be here as long as the American people leave me here, and that is the truth. I want everybody listening to this to know if you, as long as we leave these people behind bars without trial, as long as we let people like Victoria White go to prison for obstructing police when they beat her almost to death, all that woman did was hold her hands over her face, yeah. right, to protect herself. And the other thing I want to tell you, and let every, we're right now we're sitting in what people like to call flyover country, right? Right. Where I live in flyover country too. Yes. Well, guess what flyover country really means? I was interviewing Tommy Tatum, who almost died next to Roseanne Boyland at the bottom of that crush in the tunnel. And I said to him, you know, he's a young guy from, well, he's a guy from Greenville, Mississippi. And he had a bunch of local radio stations in Greenville. And I said, Tommy, you're not a journalist. That's not your background. Why did you start a bunch of radio stations? And he thought about it for a moment, and he looked at me and he said, you know, Lara, he said, where I come from, we're just, it's just throwaway country. We're throwaway people. Nobody cares about us. None of these people, they never had a voice. They never had anybody to pay attention to them. And by the way, you know, he happens to be white, and most of the people in Greenville, Mississippi happen to be black. Not that he cares, not that I care, but I raise it because when I traveled the length and breadth of this country, what I found over and over and over again was the depth of the lies of division. Mm -hmm. Yes, racism is a real thing, and we have to deal with that. And I don't know anyone who thinks racism is a good thing. But the media stoke <laughs> those. The, the fires right. of hatred. Right. Yes, they want us all divided. And let me tell you, going through all this January 6th footage, you know what I find? I mean, considering that, that black people, African-American people make up, I don't know what it is, 13, 15 percent right. of the population, there is an extraordinary number of them were present huh. at the Capitol on January 6th. And, and make no mistake, there was an extraordinary number of people who had never, ever, ever seen the capital of the United States before. There were more foreign tourists out there who had seen Washington, D.C. Yeah. than January 6s. Yeah. And they came there to exercise their First Amendment rights, and they came to do it peacefully, and we have abandoned them. You, you mentioned the tunnel, and they were being pushed from behind. Do you, have you had any theories on who might have been, I mean, do you think they were Trump supporters that were pushing people to go forward, or do you think those could have been? I do not. And, I, you know, there's always, 
when you're in a chaotic situation like that, as I know myself from being um, uh, attacked in Egypt by a mob, there's people that join in. There's people that get caught up in the moment. But yeah. you have instigators, right? Yeah. And it's very, very organized. It may look like chaos to you, but it's very, it's easy to set the conditions for chaos and to maintain the conditions. So I'll give you, I'll give you a per, my personal example so that people can see it in a way that's not through a political lens, right? right. So when I'm in this crowd of people um, in Egypt, in Tahrir Square, right after Hosni Mubarak, the president of Egypt has just stepped down after decades and decades and decades of rule, right? Um, and some people, most of the people are celebrating and they're saying, thank you, Facebook, thank you, Google, thank you, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, because this is the people's revolution. This was in the time when we still believed that technology was actually for the people and it was actually a good thing right. and that the people at Google and Facebook were not the most worthless, evil people on the face of the earth. Right. And, uh, and so people were thanking them for their revolution and believing that it was organic, right, yeah. when it's not. And in that moment, just a few instigators started to say to the crowd, let's take her pants off, let's do this to her, let's do that to her, because these are people who are trained and they have studied human nature. They know how crowds behave and they know exactly what to do. It's like taking a match. So you wanna start a huge forest fire, right? You don't just want a little fire over here, you want a big fire. So you throw one match and another one and another one and another one. And then lo and behold, the flames are going. And what happens? Other people who weren't involved, well, they feel the fire and now suddenly they're burning, right? And so they're involved and some of them are know exactly what they're doing and most of them don't. So that's really what you're talking about. When you see that chaos, that chaos is organic. It's real. Right. It's chaotic. But some of those people know exactly what they're doing. And how do we know? Because we see them, yeah. right? We see them giving hand signals. We see them counting and then indicating to people behind them. That's how you know that there were people within that chaos who were making sure that certain things happened, right? And so in that tunnel, Roseanne Boyland had no intention of going into the Capitol. Philip Anderson, who was next to her, I've talked to Philip Anderson, he didn't. I talked to Justin Winchell, who was with Roseanne Boyland. They weren't gonna go in there, but they get pushed. Right. Now, some of those people in, in the crowd might just join in the pushing, like the way Ray Epps was pushing the right. sign, right, that other people have gone to prison for, but he was involved in pushing it, and the government just sort of, oh, oh, right. we'll just ignore that. Let's just explain that one away. Yeah, that you was know. on your show last yeah, night. Yeah, we'll just throw that into the plea deal so it's covered by the plea deal, but we want to other guys that were there pushing that sign yeah. went went off to prison. Ray Epps is doing it. Yeah, uh, he, he he didn't go inside the Capitol, but he was there as you no, say. But there were people in prison right. who didn't go inside the Capitol who touched that sign. Yep. And wow. they're in prison. Yeah. And he's not. But I'm saying that because, you know, there are people pushing. Was everyone who was pushing that sign, did they suddenly find people to the left and to the right of them were right. pushing and so they started pushing? But either way, these people got trapped in that tunnel, yeah. trapped by the police being pushed from this side and trapped by the people. And now the police are trying to push people out of the tunnel, but there's nowhere for them to go. Yeah. And Roseanne Boylan goes down. People right. couldn't breathe either. Remember, they're firing so much gas. There's a lot made in the January 6th committee and in these show trials of how the police, you know, how, how terrible it was for them. But what nobody talks about is that a lot of the time they were inhaling their own gas. Right. Because the way those less than lethal munitions were being deployed was not according to standard. Yeah. And these are not called non-lethal. Notice the yeah. difference in the term, right? These are not non-lethal munitions. They're called less than lethal for a reason. Because if they're deployed in certain conditions, they become lethal. Yeah. So you're not allowed to deploy a certain amount of a certain gas in a certain environment, right? Because once it's that, if there's nowhere for that gas to go and it just keeps building up, 
then it's going to become lethal. Yeah. And that's what was starting to happen in that tunnel, right? And so what you have is in this situation, now it's been reported by the Epoch Times and a very, very good reporter there, Joe Henneman, who has been in touch with Roseanne Boylan's family, that she was hit in the chest with a pepper ball, uh, and that being you know, one of the munitions that the police were using. You, we actually see on camera a guy just you know, spraying right. like this. I don't, um, we're still working on that part, making sure um, that we can confirm that independently because we don't just rely on other people's reporting. And Roseanne Boylan went down. Whatever the reason was, she was in that crush, she went down. And when she was lying on the ground, unarmed and unconscious, a Capitol Police officer by the name of Lila Morris is on camera beating her with a baton over and over and over. And we have interviewed people who were right next to Roseanne who witnessed that, who actually heard the sounds of it crushing or connecting with her skull, is breaking. He still, is he still with the Capitol Hill Police? Or? She. Oh, she. Oh, yes. Okay. She is still with the Capitol Police. And not only that, but she was uh, a guest at the Super Bowl the following year where she was brought out onto the field as a hero and saluted by the NFL and by all those people there. It's just unbelievable. And by the media. <laughs> okay, I, you can't believe that this is happening in America. No, what you can't believe is that Americans are allowing it to happen. What do you think, uh, when you say allowing it, what do you feel like uh, ordinary Americans can do? Okay, so first of all, I get really annoyed by that question when people ask me that, because I'm like, for crying in a bucket, <laughs> you were born and raised in the freest country on earth. You have more rights than any other nation on the planet, and you can't figure it out? You can't figure out how to write a letter to your representative? You can't pick up a telephone? You can't figure out when you see, you want whistleblowers? You want people to stand up? You don't want FBI agents to go and put decent American citizens in prison for exercising their First American rights, First Amendment rights? But what do you, what do you, where are your rallies? Mm -hmm. Where are your protests? Where are your petitions? Oh, what, are you scared now? You don't want to go like the January 6th prisoners? Are you, oh, oh wait, you're wealthy. Where's your money? What are you using it for? Are you funding any of the people who are fighting their cases on January 6th? Donald Trump's he's taken some criticism for maybe not providing more resources. Why should it all be? Donald Trump is facing 10,000 right. lawsuits, okay? Yeah. He, you know, so you sure. don't think it should fall on him specifically? Why should it fall yeah. on him? Yeah. Is he the only Republican with money? Yeah. Is he even a Republican? I don't know. But is he, <laughs> is he the only American with money in this country who, who thinks that it's wrong? to put people in prison for exercising their First Amendment rights? What is it you think your money is going to protect you from? Right. What are you hoarding your money for? I, I'm, you Tell know, me about this No, no, okay. Stephen, this yeah. is a big and yeah. important point because you've got Tariq Johnson. Do you know his name? No. How many, why don't you know his name? Why don't Americans know the name Tariq Johnson? He is a Capitol Police officer of 23 years. He was responsible for evacuating the Senate chamber and the House on January 6th. So we took more than 300 of supposedly the most important people in America, right? They were important enough for us to elect a public office. They represent the whole country. Right. He was the man. Their, their lives, and if January 6th was such a security threat, it was so dangerous, and those people had to be protected, the one man that could be trusted by the United States government to take those people to safety was Tariq Johnson. And where is Tariq Johnson today? Working for a furniture removal company. He's lucky to have a job. He can't pay his mortgage. He can't pay his mortgage. He gave up his pension. He gave up 23 years of loyal, dedicated service. He sacrificed everything. And most of America doesn't even know his name. And even when they find out his name, you know what they do? They say, huh. And then they move right on. Mm -hmm. And they go back to, what should we have for dinner tonight? What are we planning our next vacation? Does this outfit look nice on me? You know what I mean? That's what we're preoccupied with. So what has happened to the FBI agents who stood up? Where's Steve Friend, Kyle Serafin? 
They did what they were supposed to do. Right. They were real whistleblowers, not yeah. like the fake whistleblower Eric Caramella, who went straight to Adam Schiff's nonsense uh, committee and did the fake impeachment of Trump over Ukraine, which was a cover-up for what the Democrats have been doing in Ukraine. These are real whistleblowers. They went to their chain of command. They did everything within their power, yeah. you know, and we have abandoned them yeah. and turned our backs on them. So I'm tired of being asked, what should ordinary Americans do? First of all, you should get up. Mm -hmm. Get up and do something. Second of all, stop being such cowards. You're a bunch of cowards because you're not even willing to have a conversation at the dinner table at Thanksgiving with your children who've gone off to college and are sprouting a bunch of nonsense from this indoctrination center they've been at. You don't even want to have, oh no, we can't have anything, can't have any disagreements at Thanksgiving. We don't want anybody to be upset. We don't want to ruffle any feathers. Oh no, no, don't talk about Trump. You're quite happy to let a president, the leading candidate in a presidential race, literally be taken out yeah. by a corrupt judges and a corrupt court system and a corrupt politicians. And if you're a Republican, you say, Whew, well, let's watch that debate and hope like hell there's somebody that, uh, that has a chance of beating Trump, right? Because we want things to go back to the way they were. What, where we all lied to each other? Where we all lied to each other and we took American tax dollars. The working man across this country whose tax dollars are being used to slit our throats does the, does the average working person out there want to finance Zelensky's war? No. Do they want to finance an open border? Do they want to pay for millions of illegal immigrants to have food and shelter and uh, 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 the ability to work? Is that what they want their money to go on? No. I mean, Were they ever asked? No, they weren't. <laughs> Were they ever given the option of voting for that? Yeah. No. Yeah, we, it, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying. And we often talk on this show about we feel like the country's being attacked from within. I mean, it really is. It is. Yeah. So, so great. Great. We're all woken up. We've all woken up, right? <laughs> what are we doing about it? Right. Where is the organization that is providing jobs to whistleblowers? for standing up. Where's the organization that says, here's three months rent to help you get on your feet? Where, is the, where are the people that are standing up and saying, you know what, let's have a speaking event at my company and pay a speaking fee and have this person come in and tell their story because we know that mainstream media has information dominance. Oh, by the way, wait, this is a Christian school, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so where are the people standing up for the Christians right. who are being attacked? Right. Where are the people who stood up for Donald Trump? 22 per churches were burned in Washington, D.C. when Donald Trump walked across <laughs> Lafayette Park and went to the, one of the oldest churches in America, a historically protected site, mm -hmm. and he held up a Bible. You think he did that because he's some TV guy? Did he do that really? Because he just wanted to make a show? He did it because he was saying to you, Christians, yeah. Christian nation, you are under attack. Your churches are being burned to the ground and you as Christians are being targeted. Your faith is on the chopping block. What are you willing to do about it? And you know well, what the answer was from most people? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. S speaking of religious persecution, what I'd be interested to get your observations on uh, the October 7 attack and then just the way that that subject and now the Gaza war has been treated uh, since. The October 7th attack, so I was in Israel, I have worked in Israel as a journalist, I've been in Bethlehem, Hebron, Ramallah, Gaza, Haifa, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, uh, villages I can't even remember the names of. I was there in the first, uh, for the end of the first intifada, there in the second intifada, there in the Hezbollah war. I have helped people, Palestinians, literally dig through the rubble and uh, pull out Palestinian kids. I've run with them as they've rushed them to the hospitals to try to get uh, treated and found hospitals with limited supplies. I have been on the Israeli side of that, um, watched people burying their children run from the rockets of Hezbollah hidden in shelters. I've seen um, the aftermath of suicide bombings where people have been obliterated. So I have really personally lived and felt, I've watched them pull Israeli undercover 
uh, officers out of a police station in Ramallah and tear their bodies to pieces, okay? So I have seen suffering on both sides. But the only thing to me, there's two most critical important things. I have been trying to tell people for years that when they stand up and say never again about the Holocaust, they are lying. They are lying to the world and they are lying to themselves because the next Holocaust has already begun. I have been saying this for 10 years because the next Holocaust, the birthplace of that, the incubator of the next Holocaust is the left. It is not the right. That doesn't mean you can't drag out some stupid idiot on the right wearing a swastika saying some horrible thing about Jewish people. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the incubator of the ideology and the infrastructure and the hatred has been the left. Mm -hmm. And now what is being exposed, so that is the one important thing to come out of this. And the second important thing to come out of it is this alliance between the Islamists right. and those who hate Jewish people. Yeah. So the left hates Jewish people, which is ironic because you still have all these Jewish people all over America voting for the left. I know. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. And they will attack me for saying that. They'll hate me for saying that. I couldn't care less. <laughs> I cannot even tell you. It doesn't make my heart rate go up. It doesn't raise my stress level. I couldn't care less. You're nothing to me. You're absolutely, the New York Times, you're nothing. You could write every single day for the rest of my life that I'm crazy, that I'm worthless, that my career means nothing, blah, 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 blah. I'm sorry. Are you the same people that lied about Russia collusion, that took Pulitzer Prizes for stories that didn't even happen. Right. They didn't even exist. Enjoy your prize. Congratulate yourself every time you look at it. Yeah. Give yourself another pat on the back. You lied about Hunter Biden's laptop. You lied about COVID. People have died in the millions because you have lied about COVID and you've lied about the experimental, I won't even call it a vaccine, medications. You're still pushing those lies. You are absolutely worthless to me. I'm no, not interested in what you have to say. So coming back to Israel yeah. and Hamas, what is being exposed is that free Palestine. There are people out there who sincerely believe that they should free Palestine. It's sort of ironic because they want a ceasefire, but they had a ceasefire. I just wanted to say before October 7th, right. you had a ceasefire. Exactly. Yeah. You also had a free Palestine. You did. You didn't have any Israeli occupying forces. The Israelis actually evicted tens of thousands of Jews yeah. from land that they gave up when they pulled out. Now that I understand, I've been there, I know they have, the Israelis own the air, they own the airspace, they, uh, they own the seas because although Gaza has you know, its, um, its own people in the water, the Israeli warships and surveillance and everything dwarfs what they have. But let's not forget, Let's, let's ask the NGOs, let's ask the United Nations, let's ask all of the, you know, uh, the Boycott Israel movement, all that money that was raised. How come not one single person in Gaza, how come none of their lives improved? Education level didn't go up, access to clean drinking water didn't go up, access to housing didn't go up, job opportunities didn't go up. You know what did go up? Let me see, Porsche dealerships. Like, like really high level, massive facilities, right? That sell luxury cars and luxury goods. Well, all the Hamas leaders are in Qatar living in <laughs> these penthouses and filthy rich. Or underground. Or underground. In the tunnel systems yeah. that they built underground. Now I understand you're fighting for your liberation, but what your liberation actually, as you define it, how does Hamas define liberation? Hamas defines liberation as the genocide of all Jews right. and the annihilation of Israel. That's what liberation means to Hamas. So I don't, I don't, my, I have a soft heart. My mother used to say to me that the problem with you, my girl, is that you got your bladder behind your bloody eyeballs, right? Because everything would break my heart and make me cry. And I don't want to see a single Palestinian suffer. Mm -hmm. I know that all across Gaza there are families and across the West Bank torn apart and it it honestly is beyond devastating yeah. same for the people across Israel yeah. families torn apart 
I don't even want to think about what it must be like. I was, I was gang raped and sodomized and beaten almost to death for just over 40 minutes. I cannot imagine what it is to be in the custody of people who could do anything they want to you day after day after day after day with no end in sight. How did, I don't want to jump all over the place, but you're bringing up a lot of different topics, but how did that, uh, that assault in 2011, this is, well first, I mean, Obama didn't exactly back Mubarak at that time. So, <laughs> you, and you say there's the instigators in the mob and that sort of thing, but uh, um, it seemed like the Obama administration really wanted a change of leadership in Egypt. Is that the way you remember it? Well, it's funny, Obama actually called me personally. I remember I was upstairs in the attic at my house, my sister was there and my husband came up with the phone and I yelled at him because I said, I don't want to talk to anyone. This was a few days after I'd got home, actually a few days after I got out of the hospital. And uh, he said, it's the White House, the president wants to talk to you. So he called you so, after the assault? Yes. You, okay. Yes, and I got letters from Hillary Clinton and all of these people, and I raised this because they all hate me now, right? <laughs> and what they want to say, uh, General Petraeus included, I remember General Petraeus saying this to me. I was at a film premiere for Ben Affleck's movie about the uh, Iran and the hostages, and I remember General Petraeus looking at me and saying, oh, Laura, how are you? And this is when he was head of the CIA, and I said, um, I'm good, thanks. How are you? And he was like, took both my hands, you know. And my husband was sitting next to me, and he was like, no, you're not. I, I know you're not, and it's okay. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm fine. And he said, it, it's okay. And I, I sat down, I said to my, I looked at my husband, I said, did the head of the CIA just act like I'm a crazy person and I'm, somehow not okay. And he said, mm-hmm, yeah, that's just what happened. And I knew, I knew in my heart that something was coming down the line because they have nothing else. They've got nothing else. The only thing they have when they can't deal with the substance of what you say is that they make you out to be crazy, right? And if you look at it, what was it Petraeus involved in then at the time? He was very much involved in Benghazi. And I had talked to him. I personally flew from New York when we were editing to go and talk to Petraeus about Benghazi and, uh, and get the truth, right, about what happened. But they just made that whole thing go away. And your, wait, I've forgotten your question. There was a reason I was telling you about well, that. Where, where what did Obama want at the yeah, time? Yeah. Well, what Obama wanted at the time was, I mean, he wanted Benghazi to go away. They all did, right? Because we still don't have the truth about Benghazi. And what they wanted, they were supporting the people on the ground, right? They were supporting the protesters. The but they had a problem. And what was the problem? Was that Egypt was the number one supporter of the United States throughout the war on terror. After 9-11, who was helping the U.S. behind the scenes? Who was doing those renditions? When the CIA renditioned somebody, right? That person's got to go somewhere. Well, a lot of them were going to Egypt, or they were going to facilities that Egypt had in allied countries around the Middle East, or they were going to places like Alexandria, which is just up the coast from Cairo, where they had ships offshore, and they were renditioning people to those ships. Mm -hmm. And I spent some time in Alexandria, right? And I, <laughs> I know what was going on in there. That's the home of the Muslim Brotherhood. But if you look at it now, something very interesting has been exposed. I was in Cairo when Obama came to power and he did his first big speech in the Middle East. Remember that? Oh yeah. And he went to Cairo and he apologized. Right. And I, you know, I was, I thought Obama was- Were you was at the speech? I was, yes. Wow. I thought Obama was impressive, right? I thought a great orator, first black policeman, I mean, I mean, president yeah, of, of yeah. the United States. I came from South Africa. Right. Mandela was our first president. I looked at Obama like he was a kind of young Mandela. In fact, I'm embarrassed to say I even said it to him when I met Obama in Afghanistan in Kabul at the embassy when I interviewed him, yeah. when he was still a senator and he was running for office. I actually paid him that compliment and I regret it and I take it back. <laughs> I would like Obama to know I was wrong. He's nothing like uh, Nelson Mandela. In fact, he's not even fit to be mentioned in the same sentence. And what do what, you see or his? So I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what he was doing at that time. Yeah. What you are seeing is the, is the beginning of what we see now, that alliance between the left 
and the Islamists. Right. Obama was putting that on an international scale, on a global level, because what did his administration proceed to do after that? They went on to deny the strength of Al-Qaeda and to begin to pull back the narrative mm -hmm. about Islamic terrorism. They got the Open Society Foundation and George Soros created an entire thing. It, Islamophobia was created by the Soros crowd. Okay, there was actually papers that were leaked on that that have somehow been scrubbed from the internet. They created this term called Islamophobia, and they made it so that you couldn't talk about Islamic terrorism with now being, without being now an Islamophobe. Mm -hmm. So that was manufactured by the Obama administration. My, you'll remember something in cr truly crazy, right? Remember it was reported that Obama told the head of NASA, a guy called Charlie Bolden, who was a young, who was actually a, a black astronaut. One of, I think he was the first. Very lovely man, very impressive. And he told him, it was reported that he told him, don't talk about our accomplishments in space. You need to talk about the Islamic world's accomplishments in space. Now, I read about this and I thought that can't be true, that's nonsense. Sometime later I'm doing a story unrelated with NASA and I get to interview this gentleman when he's head of NASA still at the time. And I said to him off camera, I gotta ask you something. Is this true? And he said, oh yes, it's absolutely true. The President of the United States instructed me to not talk about America's accomplishments in space, but to focus on the achievements of the Arab world and the, sorry, the Islamic world mm -hmm. in space. And I said, but Charlie, I said, I'm not a, a space expert, but I don't recall any. Uh, do they have any? And he said, not yet, but, they, well, but they're Obama. starting to work on it. Why did Obama push yeah. the Islamic world? Why was he pushing that? He was continuing the tradition of Hitler. Because where did Hitler go before the Second World War? He went all over the Islamic world. He made deals with Islamic countries. The Islamists and the left were always aligned. And you might say to me, okay, there'll be people going nuts listening to this right now. You're probably wondering why on well, earth did we let this woman yeah. unleash this woman on <laughs> I'll tell you why. Let me just, I'll, Finish this point, okay? The reason I say that is the National Socialist Party. They can try to rewrite history all they like, but the agenda is a socialist agenda. They're just two sides of the same coin. They were fighting for control mm -hmm. of that. The, the Franco's fascists and the Antifa, the anti-fascists, they were fighting for power. Mm -hmm. They weren't fighting each other because they one believes in freedom of speech and the other doesn't. No, if you look at their platform, n they don't believe in freedom of any kind. They don't believe in individual freedom. They don't believe in freedom of religion. They don't believe in God, either of them. They don't believe in freedom of speech. They definitely don't believe in freedom of thought. If you actually look at the platforms and you don't look at the labeling, what you see is a fight not to fight each other because ideologically they oppose each other. No, in fact, the, the Islamists in the Arab world, Jews are hated just as much as they were by the Nazis. These people are aligned. Mm -hmm. They're not against each other. They're actually aligned. And then what ended up happening over Obama's administration? Why did he clash with Michael Flynn? Because when Obama was saying, oh, remember, ISIS is a JV team. Oh, and then the JV team took Mosul. But what happened in between that? General Michael Flynn went on Capitol Hill in public testimony, in open testimony, and he told the Senate Intelligence Committee that ISIS was storming its way across Iraq. They had taken tons of territory and they would take tons more. So the only person who wasn't surprised when Mosul fell was General Flynn and all the people who were actually following the real intelligence and mm -hmm. weren't lying to the American people and lying to each other. And there are still people like Millie, these disgusting people that have no right to even wear the uniform today. So what you saw emerging, and that is now being exposed. October 7th brought all of that out into the open. Right. Jewish students have long been unwelcome on the campuses that they have financed, right. that their grandfathers and great-grandfathers have financed, right? That they're still financing. Jewish people have been <coughs> maligned and hated by the left when the, the squad is painted as if they're some sort of remote part of the Democrat Party and that they don't represent everybody. That's not true. That's a lie. Look at the people out on the streets right. and look at what, what you have done. How does that tie to your open border policy? Well, 
you're watching it unfold. Well, the hour has gone by. I have so many other things here, but maybe <laughs> you can stay with us after the show is over and uh, we'll tape a, a short, short segment before we head over to lunch. But before we go, maybe you can give the viewers your contact info, where they can get to your, your uh, X page or your videos that you're producing. And how many, how many parts in this series? 14? Yes. Wow. Although each one is like <laughs> peeling off another layer of skin. These are hard to do. And I want people to know it's possible. You can produce quality investigative journalism. We do it on a shoestring and we do it with a small team, but everybody's very committed. Yeah. It's called The Rest of the Story with Lara Logan. And you can find me on Twitter. But if you go to Truth and Media, who's my partner on Twitter or online, they have a Truth and Media website that's up now. You can find the show. The first season is about January 6th. The second season I'm planning on doing on human trafficking and human farming because that is a real thing you cannot imagine. We literally, I have a, a girl who had 17 children by her foster father, all of whom were taken away from her. And then um, the border. No one's going to escape as long as I have breath left in my body. <laughs> Your series, by the way, I know we're past time. They'll, they'll, <laughs> they'll deal with it in the control room. But your series comes out, it comes out at a great time. The uh, house just decided to release the 44,000 hours of yes, footage. Yes, good for Mike Johnson for yeah, doing that. Yeah, fantastic. Yes, he kept 5% though. Oh, really? So we want to know what's in the 4,000 hours. We want everything. <laughs> yes, we want everything. Laura Logan on today's Trumpet Daily. We thank you for joining us on today's show. And of course, we'll see you again next time.